Welcome back to Less Seen, Less Heard, Stories from the Margins. I'm Craig Andrade, and this is part two of my conversation with Sophie Godley, who is not only a dear friend, but also a phenomenal professor, teacher, and colleague in the Department of Community Health Sciences at Boston University School of Public Health. I want to, one, ask you to say a little bit about adolescent health, because it, it, sure. it also is less understood in all kinds of ways. And, you know, obviously we can't not talk about reproductive health, given what we're living with now um, and the Supreme Court in in session today to potentially undo a longstanding right for women and others. Um, so can you say a little bit about that? And um... right, okay. <laughs> um, so so let's see. So about with adolescent health, um, I think for me, the, the joy and the beauty of, of adolescent health is that um, adolescents are a mercur- mercurial group. They are constantly, as the name implies, they are constantly evolving, changing. Um, they're, they have, what I love about thinking about adolescent health, and, and in particular what I have loved in my career about sharing with parents and with teachers and with folks in the community is the developmental pathway of adolescence. So what I've, I've absolutely loved, the, the ability to translate the science, so the, the neuroscience, the physical science, the biology of, you know, what does it mean to go through puberty? What, what kinds of changes do brains go through? You know, what does that do to, to development? Um, to take all of that good scientific stuff, all that research, Mm -hmm. and to translate that into, okay, when you want to throttle your teenager, what, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Like, let's pick that apart. Why are they behaving the way that they are? Why are you reacting to them the way that you are? Mm -hmm. frankly? Mm -hmm. Um, And then what's the environment in which all of this is happening? So that to me is like, just again, I just am so grateful to have had that opportunity to talk to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of parents over the course of my career about kind of this this wild, crazy setup where we are over sexualizing our children from the day not for even before they're born, right? Mm-hmm. Um, talking about, you know, oh, you're having a girl who's, you know, they're going to have a boyfriend or, you know, all the crazy stuff that we do that over-sexualizes um, our offspring. But then putting, throwing them into this, this environment where, you know, they're not really allowed to talk about sex. They're not really allowed to talk about desire or their bodies or what's happening. And so the, the public health perspective is to not just focus on the developmental stuff, but to also think about the milieu, if you will, the context in which that's happening. And so what I love in thinking about this is just like we might think about an environment can be healthy in terms of promoting physical activity or promoting healthy eating, right? You can also create an environment that is healthier for teenagers mm-hmm. that specifically reduces the, the hyper focus on um, athleticism, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So you can create a high school that is anti-homophobic, right? Um, you can create a high school that reduces some of the crazy gender um, policing that often happens. Mm-hmm. So 
I have just loved the idea that we can take some of these structural interventions and we can think about that with this age group, this very vulnerable age group. So mm-hmm. that, so, so adolescents are endlessly vulnerable and they are endlessly resilient. Yeah. They are both of those things and they have incredible capacity to learn and change and teach us the adults. Right. Um, but they also need protected. They need some, some things. And, and what makes me a little bit banana pancakes is that <laughs> we know what those things are. Yeah. Yeah. Like the research is pretty clear what helps young people avoid, um, you know, health depleting habits like smoking or um, substance use or those kinds of things or, or even reckless driving. Right. We, we actually have a lot of information about what we need to do to reduce the likelihood of those things happening. Mm. What we don't have is the political will mm-hmm. to make those things occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, working in adolescent health has for me been all about how do we translate what we have learned in research labs or in studies or in government agencies? How do we translate that into concrete advice that communities can use, that high schools can use, that guidance counselors can use um, to better support young people as they navigate this really tricky time? Um, This, again, this time of enormous potential and enormous risk. Yeah, yeah. I just want to do a time check. How are you for time? I'm good. I just need to drop a note to somebody. Okay. So So as you do that note dropping, I I just want to, if we can go over a little, because we're at 40 minutes for our conversation, but there's several other things I want to be sure we cover. The, the, The kind of ask the the deficit kind of frame that people bring to adolescence is often the dominant frame. And you've raised the resilience um, that they have in spades all in all kinds of ways. In my own experience in adolescent health, the kind of resilience, the refusal to let go of their um, value of fairness, the want to want to be heard in a world that, uh, um, brings adultism and kind of thinks that because of their age, they don't have anything to offer. Um, I, I welcome your, your thoughts on that, what society can do to acknowledge that adolescents, recognizing they can go you know, well past 20 um, until dr- the brain is completely developed. Um, how do we change society to help bring them to the table, recognizing they may bring solutions that we could never think of. And now is more than ever a time to make sure we have more of these kinds of voices to the table. Yeah, it's a a really great question. So, so one of the places that I come to, one of the, again, sort of origin stories for me around this is my, um, you know, I've been on a lot of panels, as I know you have. <laughs> um, and I have often had the experience of sitting in a panel and having somebody next to me who does research or who is an investigator or, a, you know, a scientist, a behavioral scientist, talk about the great tragedy of queer youth. <laughs> and the story goes something like, you know, these are downtrodden, mentally ill, substance using, smoking, messy, homeless disasters, right? They're all, you know, not going to make it to their 25th birthday kind of thing. I mean, really profound suffering, this incredible description of suffering, 
right? And I get really, really angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this will surprise no one who is listening to this. <laughs> who knows me, but it, this makes me incredibly mm-hmm. angry because in my experience, queer kids are creative. They're funny as hell. They are irreverent. They are revolutionary. They don't care what you think. They have so much to offer. They have so many strengths. And we, yes, they also have often enormous health risks and enormous challenges that they are facing. But that is not the only thing about them, right? That's not the only thing that to describe them. And I, I think that personal rage that I have felt when I hear communities describe this community that I love and care about described in that way, Mm -hmm. that's part of what compels me whenever I'm describing a community that I am not part of, or that I am part of to say both, not just to focus on the, the, the detriment, right. Mm -hmm. The problems, but Mm -hmm. to also talk about resilience. So if I, if I want to learn about gender identity and about how people are thinking about the really complicated and really important, you know, notions of like what it means to be genderqueer or gender fluid or non-binary or to not identify or to have a sexual orientation and have a gender identity and have, you know, other identities that matter to you. If I want to learn about that, you know, getting on Twitter and following a couple of queer teams, that is going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to learn because mm-hmm. those those young people are leading the way in terms of how to think about this. They've thrown out a lot of the old garbage and they're, they're moving on, yeah. you know? They're way ahead of us. Yeah. So I think there's some basic, like, respect that people who are adults, people who identify as adults, need to have for the evolution of language and the evolution of, of our thinking. But it, it challenges people because it, it means that we, it, this is all about power. I mean, you know this, right? But it's, it's all about power and it's all about like, you know, how much power do I have to share? Right, right, right. <laughs> and what right. do I have to give up? Right. If I'm going to learn from young people, if I'm going to make space, you know, you know, it reminds me of that old um, uh, guidance that we often give at the beginning of a class or a workshop where we might say, uh, you've probably heard this, step up, step back, yep, right? So yep. step up, like we want to hear lots of voices, but some people are going to need to step back to make room. Yeah. And I think we've gotten maybe better at the step up part, but I still think there's a lot of people that need to learn how to step back. Yeah. Like there are times when my voice, I, I learned this the hard way for sure, especially working in AIDS, um, where my voice is like a white lesbian in a long-term relationship with a kid. Like literally there could not be a less important voice in some conversations, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, again, there's there was definitely times in my career, there still are, where I need to shut up and back up and, and create space for other people, get out of the way. And I think that's really hard for adults because... First of all, adults don't want to remember what it was like to be a teenager because many of us were traumatized by our yeah, teen yeah, years and yeah. we still haven't recovered from it. I would argue, especially those of us who are queer. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's so important. It's so important, right, to 
to create space. And how do we do that? We do that by backing up, yeah. right? By, yeah. by removing ourselves in some ways. Um, so yeah, that's what I, that's what I think of. And then, and then I think of the, you know, deep respect I have for, um, the young women I worked with when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, who, um, were, te- are, were at the time teen moms, you know, very young women, mostly under 22, raising sometimes multiple children, sometimes just one child on their own, living in a really challenging part of Massachusetts mm-hmm. with a lot of hazards around them, a lot of assaults on their character and on their being yeah. without a lot of help. And I think about for myself how, you know, we were at the time our son was born, we were both in our thirties. We had every resource there was, we had, you know, like we had ridiculous things like baby wipes, warmers. I don't know if your granddaughter has been (laughs) subjected to this. I just think of baby wipes, warmers as, as like the sign that society is collapsing. (laughs) We have officially jumped whatever that, whatever that expression is, right? Just the shark. Yeah, just the shark, right? We have lost it. Um, So we, I think we literally bought all, uh, every single thing that there was possible to buy to support the life of this Mm -hmm. infant, you know, who we brought home from the hospital. And again, two, two mom family, both parents, fully available, present, nobody with active substance use, no one with active mental health issues, lots of friends and family support, two cars, a house, stable income, you know, and we still thought we were going to lose our mind for the first year with worry and anxiety and stress. And, you know, our only job was to keep this baby alive. (laughs) We still just could not at times really, really struggled, you know? Um, And, and so I think about that parenting from that incredible point of privilege that we had. And then I, I think about these young women who I met who have none of those supports who have, you know, they are fighting for every ounce of dignity that they can scrape up and they're phenomenal, you know, absolutely phenomenal parents, like resilient, smart, just stunning, stunning in their ability to take care of their children and their, and their passionate love for their um, sisters and friends and, and family members. And, you know, just, I have so much humility from that work and from the privilege of getting to do that work, to get, to get to listen to their stories and to, and to hear their, their concerns, but also their delight in Mm -hmm. watching their children. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, some really basic fundamental assumptions that I had, even having worked in teen pregnancy for at that point, you know, almost a decade and a half, I never really knew or understood that a lot of these teen moms dropped out of school because they needed to get a job. They didn't drop out of school because they were mad at school. They didn't drop out of school because they were stupid or they were failing. They dropped out because they literally needed to earn money so they could support their baby. 
And like, how did I get to where I got in my career without knowing that? Well, well, isn't it true? Isn't it true that the society has created that frame that we that otherwise we couldn't see the reality? We've just talked about the resilience of of adolescence. These teen moms were the epitome of the power of adolescence in the midst of caring for a baby, the most precious, fragile thing that we know in the midst of you know, your, your frame of the, 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 the opportunity that you had to help raise your child. And they're doing it uh, in a sense, uh, you know, with one leg behind their back and one arm behind right. their back right. um, and still loving their, their other um, sisters in the neighborhood and caring for a whole bunch of other things. So proof positive that there is an incredible untapped power within adolescence, um, um, whether they're queer, whether they're uh, immigrants, whether they're um, any other um, um, nationality, ethnic group, racial group, that we have not been able to kind of highlight that. I wanna thank you for that frame. It just, it really kind of one helps us understand more where you come from, the work you're so passionate about and the people that we're trying to lift up in a way that helps them kind of be better known, better seen and heard. Um, You know, I I mentioned earlier, we're Supreme court is getting ready to look at Texas um, law and a Mississippi law and consider um, Roe v. Wade any thoughts given us just talking about teen pregnancy and the right to uh, uh, for a woman, um, um, however they identify, to be able to kind of take care of their own body with their doctor's support? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty horrifying. I think this is the, you know, this is the consequence, the long fingers of the Trump administration and the changes on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. I think that um, it's an incredible step backwards for for health and safety for our communities. I think that we're going to have to get more creative about how we create opportunities for access to reproductive health care. So whether that's, you know, there are lots and lots of stories from across the world of, you know, Ireland long before abortion was legal there. Um, you know, there was a particular reproductive health group that used to park a like a container ship off the coast and you could get on a boat on the coast of Ireland and go out to, you know, neutral waters and receive your health care and then go back home, right? So we're going to have to do those kinds of things to support uh, folks in states that are not going to be able to access safe and legal abortion after this. I have no optimism about how this is going to go. And I think we're in for, you know, even more fights. But I I will say this one thing, Craig, that I don't know if other faculty at the school would, who are much smarter than I am would agree with this, but I've always felt like reproductive health needs to be fought at the local level. Mm way more than at the national level. I think what happens at the local level is really, really important. Mm-hmm. So your your kid's sex ed, for example, that's not decided by the Supreme Court. That's decided by your school board. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. decided by your principal in yeah. some cases. Yeah. So getting involved at that local level, that is, to me, that's the key for reproductive health. Yeah. Governors and mayors and state senators and state reps, I think, have a lot more power in this fight than the the national picture. Now, that's not to say that places, you know, that the Supreme Court ruling isn't going to empower those 
those states to do terrible things because because clearly they are. But I, I've always felt like with reproductive health, we really need to think locally. Yeah. And some of the national debates are just, you know, they're a lot of hot air and I'm not, I don't know. I, I feel like we, we have more of an opportunity for change at the local level. Yeah. I may be wrong, but that's, that's just my, that's just my, my take right now. Yeah, no, I think there are twin truths there. The, the fact that home rule, local control yeah. has, uh, is a, is a, a double-edged sword, right? You know, the local depends on where, where your local right. is, right. right? So the, what's right. in front of the Supreme Court is trying to say that states need to be able to do their own thing because some states don't believe in the right to choose. Um, right. Um, and they want to find ways to kind of dial back all that. That's been part of the battle. It used to be that Repub- there was a, there was a, 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 collaboration around the rights because long back when people were women were dying because they were getting these botched jobs in all these different places now we're at a whole different place in massachusetts we can do that local rule we can have good sex ed in in a local city or town that really wants to do it well and they have and there will there will also be other places that don't that don't think it's something that any school should be doing and only parents should be doing which can have its benefits and obviously some really challenging uh, ill effects. Lastly, before we finish, Sophie, I just, I can't, the, the, one, of, one of the things that make you just the wonderful human that you are is your mentoring capacity and your teaching capacity. You at the school, at BU School of Public Health are one of the most decorated instructors, professors, teachers that there have ever been. That is not hyperbole. That is fact. Um, And when I was at the Department of Public Health, I know people um, fill in names like Lissette who feel like you have mentored them in ways that have provided a rocket ship to their success. I say this out loud so people understand that. And I'd love you to say a little bit about one how you bring both rigorous head and 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 pedagogy to your teaching and your mentoring and it is that much more freaking amazing because of the heart that you bring to it i've read some of the course um evaluations as the um interim chair of the school of public health and your fan club is I don't know if Beyonce has a fan club as big as yours. Um, and and it is not about popularity. It is because of what you and how you transform the classroom. So mentoring and education, setting the tone for the future public health professionals of the world and the teen pregnancy professionals of, of the world and public health practitioners of the world. Say a little bit about that as we close out this discussion, please. Sure, sure. So uh, thank you so much for, for, for saying that. Um, It's, it's such an honor to get to do this. I, I I just love teaching. I really, really love it. I, I don't know how else to put it. I, I find it so exciting, so challenging. It's always different. It's always interesting. Um, one of the things I've really started to focus on in the past couple of years is the the sort of disrupting this notion that 
classrooms have to be sterile environments mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. relationships between faculty and students have to be transactional. And I actually think what, what helps me get to the kinds of conversations, and I don't always do this perfectly, but I think what students appreciate is I think for the most part, they truly believe that I deeply care about their success. And I do. I actually really do. <laughs> and, and I really want them, especially my undergrads, I really want them to drop out of engineering school and switch to public health. Yeah, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I want them to, I want their whole life to be rocked. I want them to be like, mm. oh no, I took this public health class and now I can no longer do what I was going to do. <laughs> now I have to go do public health. And like, then I feel like, yes, you know, mm-hmm. that is exactly mm-hmm. what I want. And, and so I want to show them and demonstrate for them that, that you can have this career that's like endlessly fascinating and endlessly interesting and endlessly challenging, challenging. And you can actually make like a real difference in people's lives. Like mm-hmm. what an incredible privilege, you mm-hmm. know? And so I just love that. And I think for the mentoring part, I think it's been absolutely my honor to mentor people like Lisette at the Department of Public Health or IT, who's now has worked for the feds for many, many years mm-hmm. and is just a superstar. Yeah. Um, you know, young people of color who have not had a lot of cheerleading, mm-hmm. you know, in their lives. And, and I think that being able to see people's potential and see their talents and just fan those flames. Like it's, it, it's, it's embarrassing how little it takes to be kind and, and enthusiastic to people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And once you do that and you see how it builds people's self-confidence and how their whole perception of themselves can change, that they can see themselves like, just to say, you know, I, just a stupid phrase I use a lot in my class is I'll say, well, you know, 10 years from now, when one of you is in charge of CDC, and like I see these little <laughs> smiles, you know, like that, I know it's goofy, but like. No, it isn't though, right? I really think that matters. Yeah. Like, I really think that, that matters to say to people, you know, hey, did you know that we've had like, you know, an African-American woman who was in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency, like. Here she is. Like, here's a picture of her. Let's talk about her, right? Like, or one of my other favorite examples is this, you know, woman from a very working class background with this super heavy Massachusetts accent who rose to this, you know, she was also head of Mm -hmm, the kid. Like, mm -hmm. I love showing like a little YouTube clip of her, right? (laughs) Just so people can hear, like, there's that accent, right? Like, you know, I just love that because it's like, Again, just fan that flame yeah. where people's self-confidence and self-worth can can build. Um, and then, of course, there's tons of structural stuff we need to do to dismantle the patriarchy and you know mm-hmm. all the rest of it, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. but on an, on a one-to-one level, I just feel like what a joy to see that spark in someone, see that potential in someone, and again just the slightest bit of encouragement or, or saying to someone, I have faith in you. I think you can do this. You know, how do we, let's, what, what, what's in your way? Like how do we mm-hmm. move these barricades out of your way so that you can be exactly who you are meant to be? Yeah. You know, it's so rewarding. It's so awesome. Yeah. I'm so lucky. <laughs> <laughs>